Well, welcome back, everyone, to Over Drinks. We're doing this special roundtable with all the Adjective uh, Collective members. And uh, we've got, oh, how many do we have? We have seven of us? Yes. Uh-huh. That's that's ridiculous. What? <laughs> seven of ten? That's pretty awesome. So we have uh, all the way out on the West Coast, we have Andrea Rinkemeyer. Hello. And then uh, all the rest of us are on East Coast, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have Annie Nykirk. Hello. And then we have a Fredonia crew. <laughs> so we have Rob Deemer, Andrew Martin Smith, Jamie Lee Sampson, and Jen Jolly. What's up? What up? <laughs> well, this is a lot of this is a pretty low energy morning. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we all need to drink a little more. It's, yeah. it's, it's been a high-energy February, so March is... We're all just starting our spring breaks, so... Uh, yeah, uh, me too. I'm just, I'm just ending mine, so I'm, I'm oh, also... Oh, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm still a few weeks to go. Oof. Oh. Well, uh, as, as per the... Is, as is the tradition on over drinks, we should go around and say what we're uh, drinking. Although I don't think it's going to be that interesting this time, <laughs> but I still have high hopes for Andrew. So Andrea, why don't you start us off? Just some black coffee that apparently is now quite cold. And your U of M, U of M, and my U of M School of Music, Theater and Dance mug. Love it, Annie. What do you have? Um, well, I confess that uh, here it's noon now, and I couldn't quite make it until noon without starting coffee. So I've already had a cup of coffee, and unfortunately, I'm limited to one cup. So now I'm just having some water. Right. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Okay. Pre pre drinks pre game. Yes. Right. <laughs> All right, Fredonia crew, go ahead. Well, um, I just stopped by the local Starbucks and got a plain cup of coffee with some cream and a shot of cinnamon syrup. Cheers. <laughs> Mine's more interesting than Andrew's this time. I have a double dirty chai. Ooh. Yes. Two shots of espresso and a chai latte. Double dirty. Double dirty. Okay. Um, for entirely different reasons, I'm also drinking water this morning. In my bright green travel container. <laughs> You're well. I was right. You did disappoint me. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I am I am partaking of uh, some Diet Pepsi, which is also cold. <laughs> we would hope. I imagine that's hot. more delicious than the cold coffee, though. Yeah, probably. <laughs> All right, and I am. Uh, I'm I don't drink coffee. I'm one of the rare composers that doesn't drink coffee. So I'm having some uh oolong ginseng tea that I brought back from China with me, which oh. is just delicious. Good choice. Yum. So this podcast um is going to be about gender in composition and gender in music in general. And we have uh this has kind of been a topic that our podcast has been talking about for a long time, but with International Women's Day just a couple days ago, and this is this is uh, the whole month is is Women's Month, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it, it didn't get as much press as International Women's Day, but anyway, um, 
you know, a lot of us on this podcast have been doing different things and we kind of wanted to just get together and talk about some of the issues and some of the ways that we are um, trying to make things better in our own little circles. So I wanted to just start off with uh, Jamie because... Uh, on different uh, episodes, we've often you, you've had some facts that have been very interesting. Oh no! <laughs> and so I hope you have those facts right now, but <laughs> I don't remember precisely which ones. But anyway, just to kind of just to kind of frame our discussion about women in music, women in composition. You know, what are some of the general statistics that you have seen out there that you know are either looking like they're going in the right direction or they are troubling. Okay. So the problem with stats, there is my earbud. (laughs) Uh, The problem with stats that I have is that there isn't a fantastic one. Um, The last census counted all of us among music directors and female composers and put it at about 20 to 23 percent of the industry um mm-hmm. my problem with that is i think music directors conductors is a lower number so it's hard to get an accurate representation uh, if you look at students who major in music i think it's a little bit higher but those who make it into the career might be a little bit lower so i throw that number out cautiously what was the second part of the question? <laughs> <laughs> wow. You guys, are, you guys are just taking it easy there. Maybe you should have started coffee a little bit early. We probably should have, but... <laughs> <clears throat> oh, I think Rob is better at talking about programming because uh, he's got the stats from... Not the recent database, but you've been looking at. Yeah, it's uh, and this is based off of a number of different uh, things, especially the uh, the data collection that the Baltimore Symphony has been putting out the last number of years. Um, in general, uh, and this is obviously just for orchestral programming, but I think it probably bears out fairly consistently. And, and I'm not sure whether or not it's worse or better uh, with wind bands or other large ensembles, but at least for the professional orchestral world, usually the number is around 12 to 15% for living composers and only about 2% for women composers and composers of color. You said 2% for living and composers of color. Does that mean, how does that, you mean like for each 12 to 15% for living composers, all told. Uh, and then the 2% uh, for women composers and 2% for composers of color. So there could be overlaps there. Uh, mm-hmm. More often than not, women composers and composers of color will be living composers. Um and my guess is, is that that may change ever so slightly this year um, because of um, uh, the, the interest that's been growing with some composers like Florent Price, Florence Price and, and others. Mm-hmm. So I think there may be more programming of some older uh, composers like that who, who are no longer living. But uh, I think for the most part, 
those numbers stand up? I mean, first of all, you know, the the whole living composers, that's I don't think any of us are surprised about that. You know, we've been as long as I have been, you know, paying attention to music and, you know, since high school or something, I have never seen anything that gives me any other gives me any hope. I mean, it seems like symphony orchestra, opera, large ensembles. That's that's always been the kind of number. I think it gets a little bit better with chamber ensembles. I think we we've all certainly yeah. seen that, you know, the chamber ensembles are much better than that. But unfortunately, the large ensembles, they are the large musical face to the public of any given city. So the I think the public really sees that 12 to 15 percent number and even worse, that 2 percent number. So clearly this is, you know, it it's bad. Well, I would also say for um, chamber music, the when you have concert series, is you know series of uh, chamber music, and the and the famous string quartets go around. They're not bringing us on tour. They're bringing you know Mozart or Beethoven cycles with them as they travel around the country. So the ones that are promoted the most and have big followings on concert subscription series, they're not. There's like maybe one or two pieces a year. I would say. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing. I don't know. So the question is, I mean, what do we do? And I know that's a big question, right? And there are a lot of there are a lot of things that uh, go into this problem. And you know, one of those one of those things that kind of contributes to this problem is this attitude. And I'm not speaking for myself right now. I'm going to play the devil's advocate right now. So. Just this is not me. Um, but I think this attitude exists that I'm a male composer, but I didn't invent this widespread discrimination of women. Why should I have to suffer from it? It's not my fault that I'm benefiting from it. And it's not my fault that I am who I am. And I think this exists a lot, you know, in so so how how do we as people who want to see this, how do, how do we combat this attitude, I guess? I think this gets into a little bit of um, the same in the same way that we've seen this um, in, in racial issues that uh, there's this conception that for for people who are, you know, beneficiaries of the system, that there's this con- preconception that. Uh, in order to achieve equality for people who are marginalized, it must therefore mean that people who are not marginalized have to give something up or have to be denied something when, in fact, it's really better for everyone when there's more inclusion across the board. So that, uh, you know, to say, well, you know, it's not my fault that I'm benefiting from this and I don't want to have to, you know, give up my opportunities in order to let in someone who's marginalized is actually kind of a faulty way of thinking that people who are, um, you know, in, uh, in the mainstream or, or who are privileged in whatever way uh, can actually benefit by bringing in or working to be inclusive of uh, marginalized groups, women or minorities. And, you know, that doing that, putting that into practice is much more difficult than than just talking about it. But I think that's one kind of maybe shift of thinking that could be helpful in um, 
in getting you know people who feel like they're benefiting from the system to be more involved in in working towards inclusion yeah i think that's absolutely true and um i talk about this a lot with one of my friends um and um she says you know it's not there's not there aren't a limited number of places at the table we can just keep adding seats and so it's not taking away opportunities for anybody it's just making a a, a broader palette more dishes or something at the table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what the, it breaks down at some point, but um, well, well, one, and we all benefit from hearing more. And I think that one, you know, one concrete example that has kind of shown up in the past couple of years or so have been uh, call for scores or opportunities that are specifically for uh, women or specifically for minorities or specifically for basically just non cis white males you know and i have seen on twitter and have been part of some of these arguments um how how horribly it triggers this uh idea in white male composers that oh well there's this thing that i can't apply for that's discrimination can i ask everybody well the four of us women did you ever attempt not to apply for calls for scores that were exclusively for women? And at what point did you change your mind and start applying for them, if you have? Um, and I will say that for a while I chose not to apply for calls that were exclusively for women because I was worried that in the long run it might look like I could only win things that were for a smaller demographic And I changed my mind, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago when I started applying to go to the Women Composers Festival in Hartford and found that it's just wonderful to not go and focus necessarily on the fact that it is an entire program of women composers, but go and just be surrounded by it. And that was, in a lot of ways, relaxing in a way that other new music festivals weren't. Yeah, and I think your question, Jamie, really kind of is a pair to Rob's question, which is the issue of, you know, is it more beneficial or less beneficial to inclusion and diversity to have designated concerts that are for one particular demographic? And I think that's, you know, that's a dicey issue. And, um, you know, Jamie, like you, I've kind of flip-flopped on that as well, where, you know, you don't want to be known compositionally or musically for that one particular part of your identity you know the ideal obviously that we're all looking for is that a composer is a composer regardless of race or gender um but you know it also is important because there is this marginalization and and inequality to do something to raise exposure of women and of minorities so i think that's really the crux of the issue and you know gets to um you know, that in terms of cis white males feeling, you know, left out of calls that are designated for women or for other groups. Um, I mean, I think the easiest counter argument to that would be, well, look at any conference call for scores that is not exclusive of anyone and just look at the makeup and you can see how advantaged white males tend to be. So it kind of is a counter to that. And and in some ways, I do think that's important. And, And Jamie, like you said, I think one really beneficial thing of um, concerts and calls that are designated for 
women is to build up that camaraderie and to be able to allow women to experience what it's like to not be a minority and to not be like a token person in a conference that it's, um, you know, kind of levels the playing fields, playing field and allows for a level of comfort that is not always there when you are constantly wondering if you're being perceived just for that part of your identity or as just a musician as a whole. Um, so I think, I, I mean, I think both sides of that is, um, are legitimate and it's something that I go back and forth on as well. I think it's important to promote women in music. And if that's done by programming concerts and calls designated for women, then that's great. But also I think really it's a stepping stone and that the ideal is that, you know, women would be programmed and minorities would be programmed without needing the pomp and circumstance of pointing out that it's all women, you know, that you can just make a balanced program and that that would just be the norm that we wouldn't need to, we wouldn't need to have conferences just for women if there were parity. So it's a, it's a complex issue. Jen. Oh, um, for me personally, I just applied to everything. Um, but what I will say is, um, I remember I had a classmate ask, uh, Ricardo Zomaldun this question actually of like, if she should apply for women's only competitions or festivals and performances or avoid them. And I loved his answer because he's from Mexico and he's like, well, do I just deny myself the opportunity to be part of a Mexican composer concert? And he's like, and he said in typical, co um, composer fashion, I don't want to turn down a performance. So <laughs> that was his advice to her. It was like, you know, if you have an opportunity to have your music perform, like, why would you turn that down? Just, just go yeah. for it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than the other three women, <laughs> um, but um, it, like when I started out in grad school, there was like a real, um, ugliness towards the way people thought about uh, women's concerts and opportunities. And um, I, and it's been fun to see people's attitudes about that change. Some of the most outspoken people on the one side have now flipped and are outspoken on the other side. Um, so it's, it's interesting. And I go back and forth about it. Um, but I have to say being assigned to teach a women in music class really changed my perceptions on it and seeing how important it is and um, and kind of like Jen, it's like, I, we all want to hear our music played sometimes, you know? So, um, <laughs> nice. I don't know. And, yeah. and I, and I don't, I don't really find competitions are the way that my music gets chosen for things anyway. Same girl. So, Same. Um, yeah, it's just not, it's usually through personal connections that I've made it or, and actually I've gotten a number of commissions from not winning something. Mm -hmm. So I was like the second or third choice or something, but somebody else on the panel really liked what I was doing. And then they can like, so it was a commission that wasn't even related to the, to the original competition. So it's always good to send your stuff because you never know what is going to happen as a result. And then it won't have, you know, one of these labels or whatever attached to it. So I don't know. It just, I don't know. If, I don't know if that makes any sense, but um yeah. So I'd, I'd say just apply, apply and try and do things and um, be good people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And there's yeah. the rub. Um, just be good people. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I think that's a significant aspect of this entire thing is is the uh, good citizenship um, that 
if we instill in our students the idea that they are part of a community and the idea that they're supporting um, people in the community that might not have had the opportunities and privileges that they did and exposure that they do, using each other as a means to further our inclusiveness, that's something I think is quite significant. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad we're bringing it to that uh, community place. Another kind of reason that, you know, people cite as, well, my program isn't as diverse as it could be is, you know, just for lack of lack of knowing. And at this point in history, that should that should not happen because there are tons of resources out there and one of those resources was created by one of our own rob deemer so rob can you kind of talk about um your uh women composers database and how like what was what drove you to start that collection and you know just a little bit about it sure well i think the thing that drove me to to put it together was the fact that uh, um, save the coffee. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> uh, the thing that that drove me to to create the uh, the database was comments that I had heard over the years from conductors that said that they weren't against programming women composers. They just didn't know who they were or where they were or how to be able to go through the process of finding them. Uh, uh-huh. The internets are great, but it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. That's not my words. That's just kind of like a, um, you know, my personification of, of what they were saying. It would be difficult for them to find who they were and then to find the good music, quote unquote, that everyone is supposedly searching for in their programming. Um, and, uh, I'll just leave that there. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's um, some wild gesticulating going on in the back. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, so the idea then is when I was studying conducting, I did, I did a, a performer certificate in conducting when I was also doing a master's in composition at Northern Illinois University. And... A book that we always used to use was David Daniels' Orchestral Music, which is this big book. And if you were looking for it, it it's it's cross referenced so that if you're looking for a piece that has a certain duration or a certain size of an orchestra, or or you know maybe the, the composer was born in a certain year you could just go to that book go to the back look to see all of the different works that use a particular instrumentation or a different duration uh or whatnot and then to be able to at least narrow your search field so that then you could uh not just thumb through this book for hours on end you can actually find the 20 or 30 pieces and then you can start to go okay well which of these pieces would work on my program. And so my idea was to come up with something that might allow composers or conductors, excuse me, to, uh, to be able to do that. And so I just started, I took, uh, the initial list of composers that I'd put in a new music box article that I wrote back in, I don't know, 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. And 
you know, I'd given folks a list of, of 200 composers and about, uh, in the comments, there were about, say, 400 more. So there was about wow. 600 students, uh, 600 composers uh, that folks had already kind of said, here are people who are good. And so I put that in and then I just kept going. And there are a number of, of resources out there of lists of composers Many, many composers is one. There's a website. There's a, a few others uh, that list composers, both living and dead, of various different genres. And then I just started collecting them and putting them into this uh, database and then creating uh, search fields where you can decide whether or not you're looking for specifically living composers as opposed to dead composers, and then by genre, then by uh, race or ethnicity, and then also by location. And then it just kind of went from there. And it I, it took me, I want to say, probably a year by myself to fill out the fields for almost 900 of them. And then I brought in a number of my composers here at Fredonia and gave them an independent study to help me with it. And so there was about five of them working on it for the fall semester. And then we were able to finish out the rest of it. So right now uh, we're just over 3,100 uh composers in the database that uh, that have all of their fields filled out. That's incredible. Have you gotten any feedback from people who are taking advantage of the database, Rob? Has yeah. This, have you been aware of the impact of it? I have had a number of people uh, tell me that they have been using it as a tool. I know at least one or two people have mentioned in one social media context or another that they keep it on their phone. Um, and I'm hoping, <laughs> uh, somewhere down the line, I'm actually working with, with a former potential Fredonia student, someone who applied here, but then decided to go somewhere else for their graduate work. But then he's contacted me last year and, and said that he'd like to help me with it. And he's a computer programmer now. And so he's actually helping me to put together a, a, a web interface uh, so you, nice. people don't have to go through the spreadsheet because right now it's just in a, in a Google sheet form. But uh, the hope is, is to be able to put it into a nice website uh, mm -hmm. that makes the search very easy. And then my dream is to then also take that and put it into uh, um, a mobile app form. So that, mm -hmm. you know, it's just making it easier for people to access the information. It's pretty basic, but it's pretty powerful because right now we have all of this information out there and really very few tools with which we can access it. So that's that's kind of the hope with this. You know, I think uh, being here at Fredonia and uh, having a tool like this kind of in circulation, it's affected the culture here a little bit too, I think, especially since our studio here is is quite nearly 50-50 in terms of those who identify as female. It's pretty close. Um, and wow. so, th I mean, this is the first program that I've been a part of in some way, either student or faculty that has those that particular st statistic. Um, and then on top of that, the discussion we had on Thursday, International Women's uh, uh, Day, the, um, the idea that we can use these tools and these, um, these ways of getting informed to, to act, 
right? The idea that we, in our own small ways, in our own small spheres of influence, um, can make small changes that together will add up to something significant. And that was what I really uh, took heart in after after uh, Jen and Kiki um and Ellen and Jamie and Rob got done with their their discussion. The students coming out of that auditorium going, "Oh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna program music. I'm gonna put a piece on my recital." That is just so heartwarming. Um, and I think Jen, you spoke a little bit to that directly in terms of you know, do do it. We can talk about it, but just do the things. Yeah, it's not hard. <laughs> I mean, it takes some work, but it's not hard. And what I love about that is, you know, I think the earlier that is instilled in students who then will become professionals and, you know, part of academia, I think that really planting that seed early will make all the difference. So that's wonderful. Definitely. Did you did your department do anything deliberately to work on that uh, achieving that 50 50 in your department? Were you like actively recruiting in a different way or did this just kind of happen organically? I did not actively recruit, let's say. Um, I did encourage as much as I could, right? I, I think uh, oftentimes uh, we're, we're hoping that students come in uh, with uh, at least a minimum amount of, of experience. Um, mm-hmm. But oftentimes uh, you get a lot of interest and maybe just a little bit of experience that gives you a sense of this person has potential. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to at least think that there are a number of my students uh, who did not have much experience and maybe at another institution, they may have just said, um, come back later when you have more experience. And, and I, I took some chances and, I would I, I think the numbers of students that that grabbed that opportunity and ran with it and and have gone on to to success kind of bears that out. Um, mm-hmm. I think if we treat all uh, younger composers, especially because there are so there's such a varied um, amount of exposure to composition in public school. If we use a, a, a completely level playing field when we're allowing them to come into a composition program, you're automatically biasing the the it towards those students who may have gone to say better equipped schools, and they probably are coming from particular demographics in terms of, mm-hmm. of how much money their family has or, or whatnot, and and. You know, to be perfectly honest, we're I think we're still dealing dealing with uh, a lot of teachers out there who just they don't even think about encouraging. I don't think it's necessarily intentional, but they don't think to actively encourage um, uh, young female musicians to try their hand at it. I think there's more of them, and I have seen that uh, in a number of different instances at Interlochen and here at NISMA here in New York and even at the national level, but still I think um, broadly across the country, I think it's still something that needs to be uh, encouraged. And then hopefully that, that moves the needle. And then you, you have, then you do that for a few years and then you 
start getting word of mouth and you have women composers auditioning and they see that the numbers are high and then they think that this is going to be a friendly place and then it kind of, you know, runs itself. We do have a very large freshman class. And when they came in, there were seven and two were young men and five identified as young women. And once they get here, there are certain things we do to help foster their uh, the strength of their statements, too, because I think even um, I think musically, sometimes we're afraid we're raised to be sometimes more polite more subdued. Our society says that they like us that way in a lot of cases. And I had a chat with our freshmen um, at the beginning of this semester. And I was like, I, I want to hear you making more demanding statements. I want to hear you musically putting yourself out there. What can I do to help you out with that? And we had a really great conversation. So it's, it's multi-layered what we're doing here. It's <laughs> great. And I think that also speaks to the importance of allowing for aesthetic diversity as well, because, you know, a lot of times what, you know, what has been become acceptable as the canon or as this particular aesthetic style that fits into the academic box is, is, you know, is, has been composed by white men. So, um, I see that particular, I see that, um, both in, in young women and certainly in minority composers that um, I work at a, an HBCU, a historically black college. And a lot of Rob, I was really resonating with what you were saying about the lack of exposure and the lack of resources for high school students that a lot of the students I teach have just not had the opportunity to compose um, and or to, to do so in the style that we kind of are all indoctrinated into that, you know, I've had some incredibly talented students who um, have amazing ideas and, and um, are incredibly creative, but have never, you know, notated what they've written or do everything by ear or that kind of thing, or whose style is just, you know, their, their style is much more a fusion of, um, you know, the music that they grew up with um, and, you know, music from the church or whatever. And I think, you know, if we continue to expand what we think of as, you know, uh, academic music and allow for more um, aesthetic diversity, that will really open the doors to a lot of people who might feel like, well, you know, I, to be a, an academic composer, I have to write in a certain way. And then they get uh, intimidated um, by thinking that their stylistic choices are are somehow subpar so i think that's another mm -hmm. really important step forward yeah and i have that at um you know i'm in a liberal arts college i'm not in a conservatory type setting at all and um so i find that what my students are working on would never have flown for me like you know i have one student who's taking composition lessons and because he took electronic music class with me last year he's just crafting you know, kind of rock songs, but mm -hmm. we're talking about it. Um, like, how can you make this more interesting? How can you develop these ideas? All the same sorts of things that we talk right. about in, you know, more traditional <laughs> composition lessons. Yeah. A lot um, of air quotes but, flying around. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> flying around. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I have to, I have to kind of 
changed the way that I would teach. You know, I didn't teach this way when I was at Bowling Green or at the University of Michigan, but I've had to really kind of say, okay, these are, they're still learning the concepts right. and they're not coming out with a bachelor's of music in composition. They just get a BA. And so they ha- they can kind of do a couple different tracks for their final senior projects, whether they're doing a recital, a paper, or I, for my composers, I have not yet let anybody do a composition recital because none of them have have the amount of music and the the breadth that we would normally think of for for being that recital but you know i have I have students showing their student films that they've orchestrated and things like that and so it's it's a different perspective but it's allowing them to still explore and get some experience as a composer and mm-hmm. it's it's really been it's been fun but it's stretched me i think a lot in my own preconceived notions about what a composition lesson yeah can absolutely and be. I've had very similar experiences. My most recently graduated master's student wrote a hip hop symphony for his, um, you know, master's thesis project. And, you know, he really worked hard at fusing, you know, what he brought to the table as, you know, he does producing and stuff for local hip hop artists, that kind of thing with, you know, what he'd been studying with me and, and, you know, orchestral works from the canon. And, um, and I think, you know, it was just a whole different, learning experience for both of us, I think that uh, in in some ways it's more challenging to to kind of fuse those styles successfully. And he did Mm -hmm. an incredible job of that. So um, yeah, I think it it can only benefit moving forward that we kind of allow for um, that that aesthetic diversity. I was listening to NPR um, a couple mornings ago or afternoons or whatever it was. and they were actually talking, it was a story about um, women in baseball and, you know, how it, to a much lesser extent, but still to an extent that um, some of these ideas are coming around to allowing women to play baseball at, at multiple different levels in college and even in, you know, talking about the minor leagues or heaven forbid the major leagues. Um, but also in little league and they had this little league coach on and he, he had, uh, chosen a young woman to be on his, his, uh, his team. And, you know, of course the parents got all upset and his, his kind of defense was, well, I didn't choose a woman. I chose the best player. And I was thinking about that and, applying that to to music and i'm just wondering is that kind of gender blindness the best thing for us right now i mean annie you you kind of talked about it earlier as an ideal but are we can we be at that ideal point right now Um, I mean, yeah, it's a tough, that's a tough question because I, yeah, I do think that's the ideal and I do think that's the best, you know, if, if people are able to just see a person for their craft and for their talent, you know, for baseball or for composing or whatever, and not, not have to consider if it's a, you know, male or female, then that's, that's great. But I think the, the problem with that is that it overlooks the fact that it's still, you know, there are still more obstacles for women and minorities to overcome. And therefore, you know, leading up to that point of being selected, you know, has been more challenging for females and for minorities. So, you know, do you need to account for that? I mean, it's essentially the same kind of controversy as like an affirmative action policy 
in mm-hmm. a college. So um, I don't really know the answer to that. That's a that's a tough topic. <laughs> yeah, I think we're just so ingrained in this um, idea of, let's say, um, I guess merit, but also strength. So to go with your baseball analogy there, um, there are certain physical limitations, although, mm. you know, I, I think there will be some women who will be throwing some knuckleballs, and as long as we can control them, they don't necessarily have to throw as fast as the boys, but they can still strike some people out. Um, and I think with composing music, we have this perception still at the society at large that there's a association with genius associated with our field. And so, unfortunately, genius is paired with maleness. And mm-hmm. as long as we can kind of go after the, the fact that, I don't know, I don't think we're, we're geniuses per se. It is more of like a skill, and that's something that we don't need physicality or um, genius, quote unquote, to... Um, to have per se, we do have skill as, as long as we have this notion that like we can have different people composing music. I think that we'll be okay in that regard. I think that the problem is, is that, um, we've had this notion that only guys can compose guys can be philosophers, guys can have advanced degrees. That's not true anymore, but we still are under that shadow. Right. Because I think that so many, so many people like the conductors, the ensemble, the artistic directors, you know, of course they want to be able to say, Oh, I didn't, I didn't look at gender or race or anything. I just chose the best. But I think the problem in that is that we're not, we're not out of, we're not post race. We're not post gender, you know, it's still very much ingrained so I think if someone tries to use that kind of argument, well, I'm just choosing the best, you're still going to get a lot of people that it's just going to be white males on well, the concert, on, the on whatever. The best according to yeah. who? Well, the exactly. Best starts yes. with the sphere of good music that their teacher taught them. And I'm sorry, but for most of the people on this podcast, we were taught at a time where our teachers didn't have to deal with women in composition mm-hmm. or if they did women composers was a big dramatic problem for some teachers right like andrea's giggling you can laugh out loud <laughs> yeah. bullshit <laughs> i will i will say this this is something that i had to think about um, when I was bringing back my opera company again, we decided that this year's call for scores was going to be anonymous. And then I had the second thought of, well, I don't know if that makes things equal really, because we all come from different backgrounds. And so this year we did it anonymously. Um, At the same time, I don't know how we're going to do it next year. Do you know what I'm saying? I was hoping Mm -hmm. that more women would apply. I think I, I tried to make it clear that we wanted people from diverse backgrounds to apply, but truthfully, they did not, you know? So I, um, I've had constant conversations with my, um, with my team here where we're trying to make it, um, as, as equal or have some kind of equality as possible. But we did, did do an anonymous call for scores. Um, granted the two that we picked, they're not hundred percent cis, uh, straight white males, but at the same time, I want to go into the future knowing that I, I want to open up the opportunity for everybody, and you can't necessarily do that with an anonymous call for, or sorry, not anonymous, or yeah, an anonymous call for scores. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's a that's a tough issue. I've um, also, you know, been involved with figuring out how that works for um, some of the Society of Composers calls for the journals and the CDs in the past. And um, and you're right, like it, you know, those calls are anonymous, um, but it's still, you know, overwhelmingly white male applicants. Um, and I, what I've come to to realize or think, you know, because again, the the goal or the benefit of anonymity then is that the judges aren't biased by by race or gender. Absolutely. Um, uh, so the to me in thinking about but then you know like you said if you're if it's anonymous then you know you can't really you're not making deliberate decisions about a diversity in your program because you can't and so to me what the the more direct um solution to that is to make sure that your adjudicators are people who have diverse aesthetic opinions and who uh you know will not all be of the same aesthetic mindset and so, I mean, and that, you know, depends on, you know, for your organization, you know, depends on the challenge can be then finding a diverse adjudication panel and not overburdening uh, women who are already in the minority to, you know, have to adjudicate every little thing um, and, you know, be asked a million times. Andrea, I feel you because actually, um, even though this isn't really directly associated with composers like I think we're both in academia and this whole idea of how do we format committees I'm on a committee that helps figure out committees so that's fine yes and then we're trying to make that diverse but knowing that we have a less of a gender like equal pool to to draw from since not Mm -hmm. all of us are not even half of us are women and then we talk about people of color and you're like but we need to make the committees diverse but they're working more. Anyways, that's a whole nother discussion. But right. Yeah. The pool is not diverse. So yeah. Yeah. A committee to determine committees. That's kind of like the Starbucks that's across so the street from the other Starbucks or something. I feel <laughs> it's like. called I executive know. and we feel important when we do that. <laughs> Although my at my institution actually many the I don't remember the percentages right now. I'm I'm sorry, that's not a thing that my brain does well, but um, many more women on faculty at my school. Interesting. I have to go now. I'm really sorry. I have to get on the road. <laughs> well, you have to make a big exit, Jen. Say something I mean, profound. You, you can't just disappear. <laughs> I, I, I thought the last one was pretty profound. Yeah. yeah. I thought so, too. And I was trying to yes. like bring in the knuckleball analogy. Knuckleballs yeah. aren't as fast good. as fastballs or curveballs or sliders. You can borrow mine from how I was going to sign off. Okay. Program more diversely, bitches. <laughs> I, I think it needs to be this. said with that oomph too or I can just say it's not hard just as long as we make a concerted effort <laughs> to be diverse and that includes every voice So, thanks Jen alright to get us back into it we are now 50-50% percent gender split on the podcast for the rest of it and oh, uh, something happened on Thursday night I hope you don't mind me sharing I'm saying it. So um, we live broadcast our women in music discussion and the comment went up and then disappeared. Um, but somebody gave Rob a hard time about being a guy on stage in a women mm. in music discussion. And if you've listened this far, I want you to know that it is my opinion. If we cut men out of this conversation, we're not getting anywhere. Exactly. So I think it's perfectly acceptable 
and I'm an opinionated feminist, that this is a 50-50 conversation from here on out. So if you have a problem, my email address. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Andrew, You're be sure to, to put it in the in the the show notes as well. No, I'm kidding. You're gonna have to deal because I don't. I'm not interested in not including men in this conversation. Jamie, I th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I was while I was kind of preparing for this and thinking about you know what to talk about. I was thinking back to several years ago um, when we were just starting the podcast, and you know things about uh, gender and composition were really starting to come to light. Maybe not for the world in general, but really for me. Like I was, you, you know, I had I had that awakening. Yeah, and you know. <laughs> I remember talking to my wife about how I wanted to be part of this conversation because I thought it was really important, but I didn't really feel like I had something to add. And she told me basically at that time, well, maybe instead of talking about things, just do things, you know? I love your like, wife. She's amazing. Yeah, I, <laughs> she, she's pretty good. Um <laughs> Like she was absolutely right at that time for me. For me, it was just more important to do things, and and to your point, uh, Annie, to do things and not really expect fanfare for doing it. Just to like exactly. completely change how I was thinking about which composers and which pieces to use in my classes, in my yeah. lessons, and all that stuff, and just like just make the change because it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But I think. That now, I mean, certainly because of the sheer numbers that you get, you have been talking about before, the sheer number of male to female composers in the profession right now, if men want to see a change, they must join the conversation. Because I think disproportionately, men are the one in, in areas of... ensembles uh, artistic directors in faculty positions men are disproportionately the ones quote-unquote in power right now so if those men don't make the change there will never be a change Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely true I wouldn't be sitting here right now if I hadn't had my undergraduate composition professor um you know, say, why aren't you a composition major? Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, I'd been, I'd been co- composing since I was a little kid and just never really thought about it as a thing you could do. And had he not pulled me aside and had, a, you know, some words with me about like, you know, this is silly that you're not doing this. If I hadn't had that support, if he hadn't sat me down, helped me apply for graduate school, this, this yeah. path would never have started. And so it really took a person who was, willing to take a shot on somebody and be supportive. And, you know, we had several, several um, female undergraduates at the University of Oregon in the 90s, you know, because he was willing mm-hmm. to look, look for people. I had the exact same experience as an undergrad, Andrea, that it was, you know, a white male teacher who pushed me to pursue composing. And that, you know, mm-hmm. really impacted my, my life. So it absolutely, you know, men can make a huge impact. It's not just a women's issue. It's not. It's a human rights issue more than anything. And I think a lot of the guys who are writing these comments online that we've seen lately about 
stolen opportunities, greater diversity equaling stolen opportunities. I think they're having a, a gut reaction to flinch away from their guilt. Mm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Instead of a moment to pause, consider what on earth is going around them, and make a small change that can make a huge difference. I, th- I think that's part of it. Some people just... Well, here's... Some people I shouldn't finish commenting on. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's, here's something of interest. <clears throat> I'm wondering if these folks who are uh, more or less shouting at the rain as far as the calls for... The specified calls for uh, female works or minority works or what have you are the same people that, you know, shake their fists at a string quartet wanting string quartets for their call. Or, you know, it, it's just these, it's a, it's a specification, right? This is something that is not for me, so move on and, and offer that opportunity to somebody who has it. But, Andrew, I have this amazing tuba, accordion, and piccolo, and banjo piece, and your string quartet should play it. Right. I'm 23, and this cuts off at 22. This is not fair. <laughs> that's a great analogy i just just derailed that apparently sorry (laughs) no that was a great point you're basically just saying haters gonna hate is that (laughs) yes well no i think you're saying that you know there are limitations in every call and why should a limitation of gender or race be any different than an instrumentation or age or whatever. It or location. A, yeah. Yeah. Regional yeah. calls. Yeah. It just becomes like this hot button issue when it's about, you know, for, for a marginalized group rather than, you know, anything else that might be a, a limitation of the call. So I think that's a great point, Andrew. I think it's also a challenge because just inherent in the, uh, uh, in the discipline of being a composer, it doesn't matter <laughs> Who you are, you always wish that you were doing something more than you're doing. Like oh, I yeah. think composers in general, we're always it it it's not like we're inherently competitive, but we're a little competitive. Like we're always yeah. like you know, someone gets an award and we're like, damn it, why didn't we get an award? Someone gets a commission, damn it, why didn't we get a commission? And I think that's just like we're, we've been we're composers no matter how long they've been doing it inevitably they're like even if they have six different pieces on their docket they're like yeah but I didn't get that seventh one uh, you know <laughs> I don't have time to do it but I wish I could do that anyway right. so I wouldn't have done it anyway but I wanted the opportunity, <laughs> but I wanted the opportunity right. <laughs> and so so and 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 of so, course you know even probably 20 or 30 years ago people were probably bitching and moaning about how all the composers at this particular institution or that particular institution were getting all of the, you know, take your pick. Uh, and so now we're just like, oh, in addition to that, now we have to worry about all these other demographic groups that I don't even fit into. Like, at least I didn't get into Yale, so I don't fit into that. But now I'm a guy, too, so I'm now, you know, and so I think <laughs> there's these layers of of perceived... Um, you know, oh, I can't do that because of X, as opposed to just 
dude, find your own opportunities and right. and make, there are no shortage. And, and it, it does not yeah. matter where you live in this country. You're going to have challenges, and it nobody's going to give it to you. And then you just have to be able to work with it. And the idea of of pushing back against increased opportunity and the concept of anyone going, oh my God, it's so hard to be a male composer. I'm sorry. <laughs> shut the fuck up. You know, Jim left with the only tiny violin we had. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's it's really it's it's really like that is not the case. Now, I will admit that being a living composer, that is a challenge in and of itself because we're competing against hundreds of years of repertoire that conductors and composers and 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 presenters are already amenable to because they're known solidified quantities. by time. They know that they are going to and this is kind of winding around to to one of my points that I wanted to make at some point is that it's winding around to the idea that it gets butts in seats which equals money. In the same way that uh films, film studios make certain programming choices by deciding what actors to put into a film or what films to put into how many theaters. It's the same thing with music and orchestras these days, especially with the, with the, the inordinate amount of say so that marketing departments have in orchestras, right? It's not just the artistic folks. It's also the marketing folks who have at least some say in what kind of pieces get put onto season programs. Um, I think it's, it's one of those things where we have to at least change the conversation of pushing back against, yes, you might lose a few audience members if you don't put that particular Tchaikovsky piece on the program. But if you can bring in at least as many, if not more, audience members because they are seeing and it may not be the same audience members it may be out of a of a, a larger audience pool the idea of bringing in composers that may resonate with people who aren't even coming to those concerts in the first place thereby expanding your audience base thereby actually increasing the amount of money you're making or at least solidifying that i know i'm probably being overly optimistic but i think that's <laughs> at least one argument that we can make that if you want to have uh, composers being performed that more reflect the greater population of the folks who could be coming to these concerts, I think this is a way to be able to do it. And in particular, a younger demographic of audience Absolutely. members, you know, which is what the orchestras really need uh, to keep their audience base alive. Literally. <laughs> wow. Uh, Solid job. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. I wanna I, I wanna just kind of take a pause for a second because Rob, you said something that that just reminded me of I think at least why I was very excited when Andrew and Jamie came to me with this idea for a collective is that you said you know we're we're all very competitive and we're not cheering on each other and that <clears throat> that particular reason was i wanted to cheer on my friends you know 
And I wanted to kind of get over that idea of, well, I didn't win, you know. And I think that when the collective came about, I I don't know if you guys remember that conversation. This was like five years ago or something, um, Andrew and Jamie. But I was like really excited because I wanted that kind of family quality amongst mm. a group where we can all say, well – you know what? I don't have something for you, but I know someone awesome who does. And yeah. while I didn't win, but that person's an, that person is awesome, and yeah. I love that he or she won. You know, so can just can be we, happy for your friends. That's yeah, that's, exactly. Well, now that now that we're we're kind of all uh, sharing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's a little bit of me that that likes the aspect of this collective too because we're all a little bit competitive where where we have the opportunity to see close friends and colleagues pushing themselves to do something and and saying you know oh oh you know Andrea's doing something or Rob's doing something or Rob's doing something or Annie's doing something right or Jamie's doing this thing I should get off the couch and I should finish that piece I know yeah. the day that <laughs> Evan Williams recently yeah. got the Detroit yeah. Symphony. Oh my God! Yeah, such a great I was thing. Angry, <laughs> I couldn't get a hold of Andrew to celebrate. Oh, and I was oh. like, Evan Williams. <laughs> and he was teaching, and I was like, "What's wrong with you? We need to celebrate." <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I just I, I just wanted to talk yeah. about that because we don't often talk about why we are in this collective. And I think yeah. that for me, that was a big reason for mm-hmm. just wanting to be amongst people that legitimately support each other mm-hmm. as opposed to just being out there for yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Annie, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to agree with Andrew's sentiment that it's nice to be able to, um, you know, be motivated by each other's success rather than dragged down by it. You know, that, that same concept of like, Oh man, I want to be a contributing factor to this organization and not, you know, be the weakest link or whatever. And that, you know, <laughs> other people's success kind of feeds, you know, feeds your own motivation to, to keep being better. And that's great. Kind of the last thing I wanted to talk about, and I just saw this article this morning. It was an article on the website newsounds.org, and it was about um, they, they for International Women's Day they had you know twenty four hour playlist of mm-hmm. of um, all composers who were women, but they uh, the article was titled uh, "Gender is Not a Genre," and that's I guess actually a quote by. Gazelle Amber Valentin of the band Jucifer from a 2014 interview on NPR. And they actually kind of said that something like International Women's Day actually contributes to the otherness of composers who are women. You know, groups that have been, and they, they went on to say that groups have who have been historically and presently marginalized have been have to be integrated into everyday programming like what we said before without fanfare to challenge norms and reinforce equal representation. So 
you know, we I think we have been seeing these things, you know, uh, like, for instance, uh, at uh, I went to a concert recently that was just all uh, all percussion music that was uh, by women composers. And I thought, wow, this is great. But on the same in the same uh, breath, I'm like, well, why does it why does it have to be so special? You know, why is this a once a year thing or even not once a year, once every five years? Why isn't it just why is there a fanfare? You know, mm-hmm. and that's I, and I know that, Jamie, I I messaged you and Jen about my thoughts about International Women's Day. And, and I, I kind of agree fly. with this with this last <laughs> statement that it yes, it is it is wonderful to celebrate and it gives us a reason to celebrate kind of like valentine's day is a reason to say i love you but shouldn't you just be doing that all the time all the time mm-hmm. i agree but it gives us a focus to talk about that in situations where it normally wouldn't be absolutely so that's the one day a year i take a half an hour out of theory class and usually i wear my feminist as fuck tank top but i didn't this year <laughs> Because we had a stage thing later in the day. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I open the conversation up to everyone and say, what is fair? What is unfair about pushing for equal programming? What is the advantages and disadvantages of the BBC starting to say, by 2020, 50% of the works that we commission are going to be by women? It's been huge pushback because it's unfairly advantageous to women <laughs> how is 50 I'm sorry. 50 I'm unfair sorry. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> seems like it should be 52 48 <laughs> yeah right well, well if we are 13 to 20 percent of the industry depending on what number you look at and we're 50 percent of the programming or the new commissions right. then right. are we getting a stronger advantage I'm like, well, for the first time in history, if this is, if we're saying this is the first time in history, then fuck no. Um, (laughs) But um, there's this political science concept called the Overton window that I wanted to bring up today. I was hoping you were going to get to this. Well, I decided to save it for this. So the idea is that there is a small window of information that the public is willing to accept on any given political topic. So the example that they gave in the, I'm going to take my, hold on. Uh, the example that they gave in the video that I watched was, uh, was gay marriage, gay relationships. And early on the Overton window said that it wasn't acceptable. Until we started asking for gay marriage. And then the window went, what if we just give you gay relationships? And it nudges just slightly. And so I had a problem even six months ago with us being 50% programmed and forcefully 50% programmed. But because of that political science topic, concept, I'm willing to budge. Because if that 50% gives us the 15 and every other orchestra in the United States because the BBC is setting a good example. 
even one that is being fought against, then I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where I sit with that. We're not a genre though. Yeah, I think the budging. I think the budging helps. Um, I, I'm more concerned about it for my students and my daughter. Um, that as we move these things, it's just not maybe even ever going to help me, but it's going to help future generations. Future. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I think you know, Rob, what you were um, summarizing with that article about you know introducing things without fanfare. Um, you know, I, there, there's no reason that we can't continue to do both, you know, that, you know, you can, you sure. can work on just, you know, nonchalantly uh, adding more diversity or, or whatever um, without making a deal of it at the same time as doing things actively in other arenas. Um, you know, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. And, um, you know, I, I do because I do think, you know, for myself as a you know, woman composer, it's more exciting when I see parody that is not made a big thing of. Like I participated in the um, uh, Third Practice Festival, which is a a new music festival out of Richmond this past fall. And they're, I mean, it was still certainly male dominated, but their closing concert um, with their guest ensemble, the entire closing concert was all female, but it wasn't, you know, anything that they advertised consciously or publicly. It was just, I looked down at the program and every single piece on the closing concert was by a woman. And to me, that was so much more exciting to see like, oh, look, look at this, you know, this just happened. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like that was much more invigorating than, I mean, of course, you know, I still appreciate and am, uh, you know, understand the importance of doing it deliberately, but to just see it, you know, without the pomp and circumstance, you know, it's still very noticeable to someone who is used to seeing one female name on a concert at a time, you know, so. If that, yeah. Yeah. I, when they do promote these things of like, look, women compose too, and they have this concert, and it's just like one representative piece from somebody, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I, no, no one of my pieces represents me as a composer Mm. you know hopefully there's more breadth than just one of my pieces um you know and then also just to have these like little snapshots and then to be like you know women compose i I, it just really it feels bad it feels Mm -hmm. bad when you have your pieces on one of those because no one ever has a hey look men compose too you know no one ever has that concert but they have those for women all the time yeah and it and i know i'm making it sound like a joke but it's it's kind of infuriating at this point Mm -hmm. in my life to still i mean i like to have the performances but i didn't know when someone was programming the piece that they were going to put this like silly title on it right you have to be like a novelty right (laughs) yeah well and as for for as much as many problems as our industry has, International Women's Day is not about us. International right. Women's Day draws a lot of attention to violence against women and mm-hmm. um, areas of the world where we're still not allowed to drive, work, uh, right. have any options school. about how many children we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's a great day to focus these problems and put a lot of pressure on issues that should have constant pressure to resolve. And that's that's my mm-hmm. big thing with that day. And I hope yeah. we never get rid of it until all of those are resolved. 
it's something to keep in mind that um, African Americans got the right to vote 64, I think, if memory serves. And we're still having issues 50 years later with voting irregularities and voting mm -hmm. issues where there are still people out there trying to make things difficult for certain demographics to vote. And that's voting. That's something as important as like voting for national elections. It's even for us right now in March of 2018, it feels maybe a little different than it did even just a few years ago, especially just in the last six months because of all the attention. Uh, and suddenly it seems like, you know, suddenly the entire country is now woke because we're, we're you know, because of these things that have come up uh, just since, what, September or August or or whenever the, mm -hmm. the, the issues that came out initially out of Hollywood and then that kind of spurred any number of things. But I think the idea of having these um, opportunities for intense focus like International Women's Day mm. help to then create momentum with which then it carries through the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. So obviously you can't have International Women's Day every year, but you're going to have these uh, focus points with which then you then you have literally everybody going, oh, we need to get more uh, you know, we we need to have these collections, like you were just saying. They they had twenty four hours. My guess is they had to actually dig to find uh, composers to be able to put on that twenty four hour radio list, which means that right. they may have discovered some composers that they didn't know about before to make that list. Which then, hopefully, that will make them go, "Hey, we should program that person again," like just sometime in June. Like just <laughs> on a For day, no right? Yeah. Yeah. And so slowly over time, and I know, like putting my database together, I've learned about so many women composers that I didn't know existed. And slowly over time, I remember their names, and I think about checking out their their music. And and over time, that then kind of seeps into it. But I know, even just a few years ago, if I saw a concert with just guys, I wouldn't have thought two seconds about, you know, that or, yeah. a, or, a, or a conference speaking or whatnot. <laughs> now I see that and I immediately go, you know, red lights are going off in my head going, what the hell? And I know mm -hmm. that's because I've been living in this space for a number of years. And I know there's a whole bunch of folks out there who are not by, not by intention. You know, they're just like, they're going about their business, doing their thing. And, then they see us having these public conversations about it. Um, I just actually had a conversation with uh, a, a musician up in Buffalo. Great, great professional uh, performer who plays with the Buffalo Phil. And he was like, huh, I never realized that this was even an issue. <laughs> of course, some of us are like, um, yeah, we've been talking about it for some time. But... It's easy for us to um, to to forget that the conversations that we have on social media really only go out so far, mm -hmm. and so we're yeah. we're going to have to hit mm -hmm. this for for literally decades and decades for it to get to the point where it 
it gets to the uh it, it becomes just a thing can i can i use a word here um a habit yeah i think it, it would be nice if this will if this becomes a habit yeah. um and i think i always try to relate to this one quote uh that i was taught when I was studying martial arts, um, my instructors would always tell me, as you go out and as you teach and as you share your knowledge and information you've acquired with the rest of the world, whatever, whoever, wherever, um, you should always try to give without remembering and receive without forgetting. And I think that's such a laudable ideal, to be able to give without remembering to do so. And to receive things from others uh, without forgetting that they've taken their time and their energies to do something for you. Um, that's a great ideal. We're all humans, though. So having a combination of this, this white-hot, blinding focus and this fanfare so that I like the idea energy, the energy of that can carry you throughout. That's nice. Rob, something you said um, that I just forgot what you said. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Andrew just had this beautiful, poetic, you know, closing thing, and you're like, and I forgot. Are you sure there's nothing else to pick up? That's really good tea. That's, re- That's really good <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can't blame the drink this time. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. All right. We're back. Something you said about the musician in in Buffalo, you know, I never realized. I think a lot of people have that moment. And I think for those of us who who have been, you know, thinking about these issues and and actively doing something about it, it's also our job to treat that person with compassion. Because at a certain moment, we had that moment too. Mm-hmm. You know, at a certain time in our lives, we we had that moment too when we kind of like were jolted awake and said, "Oh, wow, this, no, this is this is a problem." And just because I've been living with it for two, three, what, however many years longer than you have, doesn't make me better than you. Like, so I think, and. And that's that's how I'm approaching, you know, students and things because like we've all grown up in the same system. Which has treated various of us very differently. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. And I don't know why this just popped into my head, but I think it's I think it's a pretty good analogy. Um, you know, when when they unplugged Neo from the Matrix <laughs> and and uh Morpheus is just says something like he he you've just woken up or you're you're using your eyes for the first time you Hmm. know I think that's what is happening right now a lot of people are just just waking up and getting unplugged from that system and it's it's our job to kind of like welcome them okay yeah come be part be be you know be part of our group now or, or you know, right, whatever. Be part of the solution. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Catch them when they stumble because we all do. Yeah. Right. It's, it hasn't been abnormal for some of us on this conversation to be called not good enough feminists. Mm. 
and were some of the people who were fighting hard in both visible and not visible ways, which also have a big impact. And it's hard sometimes to have the patience that you need with those people, but they need it in order to improve. Mm -hmm. And we need to be challenged, even when we hate it, in order to keep fighting the good fight. Oh, man, I think you're so right about that, Jamie. Um, you know, it's easy to feel like you're the only person working on something um, or to not or to be judgmental that somebody else isn't doing their part. But um, you don't always know what's going on behind the scenes for somebody. Um, you know, we're all educators and it, it takes a tremendous amount of time to um, bring guests to campus to craft special assignments for students to make to make special um, special learning experiences for your students. Um, so it might not look like you're out there doing much to further the cause, but um, in reality, um, you know you're working pretty hard. So I think it kind of goes back to this idea of kindness. And, um, you know, you also don't know what's going on in somebody else's life, things like that. So, um, you know, people have their strengths and their weaknesses, and I think we need to, um, you know, be cognizant of those things too. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Just, Love it. just have, have, have compassion, have kindness and be inclusive, be inclusive and program. What was your thing, Jamie? Program, program equally bitches. Program board diversely, bitches. Yeah. <laughs> and we're out. Is that, that's the tagline, huh? <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.